posted on dimlywit.com. My name is Dr. Daryl Appleton, and this is Feelings and Other F-Words. This F-Word almost didn't happen. It almost didn't happen, friends. And it took a hot, hot second to get me here so I could get this F-Word to you in your living room, car, hiding in a part of your house away from your family to listen to it. It took a hot second. And that's because I struggled to see how it was relevant to us. And my producer, Alan, brought this F word to my attention. He was like, what do you think about it? And I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. It feels it feels gross. It feels cheap. And he was like, sit with it. Do what you do. Figure out how you feel about it once you learn more about it. I think it's a good one. And I'm so happy he did. Because today, we are diving into the world and into the psychology of fame. That's right. The Whitney Houston's, the River Phoenixes, the Michael Jackson's, like the Kardashians, like we're obsessed with fame. We're obsessed with tragedy around famous people. We're obsessed with reality TV. We're obsessed with our TikTok influencers. I'm watching this stuff about like the Good Morning America people and their affair. I've never even watched that show, but I'm like three Google pages deep and trying to like learn about it. Why? I don't know why, because it impacts me. And what a dummy I was for not even recognizing that it does. I guess I just didn't want to admit it to myself. But today we are breaking down fame. And I wanted to break this episode down into almost chunks. Because I think there's so many different ways that fame impacts us. And I want to chunk this out. I want to break this down into three major components in this episode. Because I think there's different elements of fame that we need to unpack. And on the first level, it's wanting fame wanting to be famous, wanting to have some level of notoriety or social status, or even like going into the likes on our social media pages, like really unpacking that and how it impacts us as humans and how it impacts us as literal living, breathing creatures, because it does. And then I think there's this other kind of subset of watching fame, being around fame, being a literal spectator to the fame in other people. And that does something to us as well. Again, being adjacent to fame, working for somebody famous, watching, you know, our reality TV and stuff like that. And then the final one is actually having fame. I work with a lot of high performers, which means they're the best of the best in their field. And fame doesn't necessarily look like paparazzi is swarming you. Like I have guys that work in esports and cannabis and like in their world, they're super famous, but like they're not getting mobbed walking down, you know, the street trying to get their coffee, but it doesn't mean they don't have that level of notoriety. But I want to break down what it's like to have fame. And there's actually some studies that looked at fame in a very scientific way. And the brain changes that came from having a certain level of notoriety. So we're going to dive into all of this and more because I was wrong, Alan. I'm going to say it here. I was wrong. This is some interesting shit. So let's go. Let's back it all the way up. Fame isn't just important to human beings. There is a ton of studies that 
looks at the animal kingdom that also shows how fame or status or celebrity can change the way they literally look to the outside world. So what is the difference? What's the difference between fame, celebrity, and status? Before we go into all of that, because I think we're going to use this word fairly interchangeably, even though they're kind of different, right? Fame on one hand is this longstanding phenomenon, right? You're typically glorified for deeds that you're well known for. And these deeds don't mean to be good deeds. These deeds you can live on in infamy, right? Our true crime, our serial killers, like there's a fame around it. Fame is sometimes associated with this positive word. It is not fame, infamy, infamy, like they're they're the same package deal here. Then you have celebrity. And I was looking this up and my favorite definition of celebrity was a person who is well-known for their well-knownness. I love that because on some level, we don't actually know what you do. I feel this way about all like the TikTok stars and I'm so sorry. I just like can't get into it, but, and maybe one day I will, but like, they're just well-known for being well-known right now. And maybe because they did something or they know someone or they dated someone or they have like sick dance moves to some, you know, rendition of the Sam Smith's unholy that everybody's doing. I don't know. I don't know. But you're famous for being famous or you're well-known for being well-known. Then there's this status side. I grew up outside of New York City, Bergen County, New Jersey. Like there's a social hierarchy. There's a status that comes from being a Ridgewood mom or an Upper East Side mom. Like, and if you don't know what that's like, look at wherever you live and you will see in the PTO, PTA world, like there's a social status, whether you want to believe it or not. So this is this idea that people have kind of a a leg up because of who they are, what they do, where they stand in the community. Even if it's self-appointed, it doesn't even need to be appointed by other people. You just need like one other person to follow you. And, and that's that, right? So there is a difference here. But in the animal kingdom, there was actually this study that was done. And I geeked all the way out over this study. I don't know why, but I told like my mom, my dad, like my family, my friends. And they were like, cool story, bro. What do you want me to do with this information? But I read this study and I was like, this is wild. So in like the early 2000s, these researcher did a study of fish. Don't ask me what fish, but fish. And they were this kind of like taupey colored fish. And they saw that when this certain fish had a bump in social status, meaning they defeated a rival, they accrued a territory, they had a hot piece of tail they got with, no pun intended, but really it was, they changed from taupe a sad beige, if you will, to a vibrant or brilliant blue or yellow. They went from taupe to an electric blue once they had a bump in social status. They literally got a makeover, their glow up happened, and they said, hi, look at me, now move aside. That is wild. And this change happened within 20 minutes, 20 minutes of feeling themselves. All of a sudden, they became a whole new fish. That is crazy. And some of you out there are doing this because I see it on your social media. You get like 50,000 likes on a video and all of a sudden, like, you don't know nobody. I get it. I hear you. I see this. There are brain changes that come with that in the world of the animal kingdom, in the primate world, lots of studies on monkeys with this as well, but also with humans. 
Now, Harvard did a study that was looking at this idea of how do we recognize social status? How do we recognize the differences in people and when, really, when? Now, if we were all sitting together kind of having coffee, I would probably pose this question to you as I did some of my friends. And I would say, what age do you think the human brain is able to recognize different status in people? What age? My guess would have been about like four or five. Four or five, you know, like some people are just not as great as others. The research that Harvard found was at 10 months, 10 months old, babies could tell the difference between social status. Not like who had money and who didn't, but they started ranking people differently. They liked people better. They started to see people as more important than others. If you walk into my house on any given day, I'm sure my mother, Barbara, will be there right? She likes to let herself in. She just wanders around my home whenever she wants, which is fine with me. Now, Barbara, who my twins lovingly call Bob, she is Grandma Bob. Bob is a celebrity at the Appleton household. Bob is literally, I, and I mean this sincerely, Jimmy and I could be dead and bleeding on the floor and the twins would literally shove us out of the way and use whatever they could to get to my mother faster. Like she is their person. Like they love her so much. So I get that. I can totally see that. And it's been like that their entire life, I feel like. So I can understand the 10 month thing, but our brains are literally formed on such a foundational level to give a shit about these differences, to prioritize different people, to see certain people as more important. And I think like the society around us has kind of exploited that, whether they know it or not. I'm sure they do, because like if I'm looking this stuff up, I am sure that they have as well. So I want to really get into this idea of wanting fame. I think that there's something really interesting about here because fame has really been ignored as a motivator for human behavior until recently, until we've seen all of this kind of stuff coming up in the social media world. And to be fair, I think the the good people in anthropology have had a beat on this for a hot second. Uh, but psychology, like they've been kind of slow to start with it. And it's really gained a lot of attention. Now, there's this idea that it's rooted in social acceptance. And I can I can buy into that. We all want to feel seen and heard. We all want to feel like we are important, that we matter. We matter to the people around us. And what better way than fame, notoriety, social status to confirm that and to continue to confirm that? It wasn't just a one-off, like very Sally Fields of us. You like me. You really, really like me. So there's something to be said about this reassurance by being widely known and Studies found that later in life, people tended to have more acute feelings about fame, about notoriety. And again, I'm saying it and you might have visions of like red carpet. This also could mean in the field of engineering. This also could mean your academic grandfather who never published that paper and this deep mourning that comes from that because there is this realization that you're not going to make it in this life. And like, what a sobering thought. Everything I've worked for, everything I thought I could accomplish, there might be a day and time where you say to yourself, it's not going to happen. 
And that's wild. That's a wild, wild thing. And I think we need to like honor that a little bit. Like, so all of us wanting fame or wanting to be something or someone, it's not a bad thing when again, like a world of excess, things tend to get a little crazy, but in, in it's in, in of itself, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's wrong. So I also understand why people go the route that they do. Doesn't mean we're all like running out to sign up for the next season of love is blind. Although some of us might. And again, like I, I have no shame in your game, like go for it. But it just means we have all potentially thought about wanting to be the best that we could be, whatever that means, whatever that means, even in getting a partner, evolutionary psychology, like we were all like in the world of hunter gatherers, women historically and scientifically and biologically tended to go after the most fit sperm, not even man, right? The most fit DNA so that their offspring would survive. So also this idea of being fame adjacent or being with somebody who could take care of you um, and wanting fame that way by being the the significant other of so-and-so is also something that I think is really interesting. Really interesting. Now, on the anthropology side, there's also the a lot of studies that found that even in a world where social distinction and prominence was not actually desirable as it was in the Western culture lens, like in India, there was a study done about widows. And in the in some of these cultures, they found that when you were widowed, you were a widow for life. But again, from this anthropological lens, there is also this jockeying for position of who, who was the most pure in social comparison to the widows around, who had changed their diet, their life, who had dedicated themselves to the memory of their significant other. Um, and there was something to be said about that. And this is true in many, if not all cultures, Italians, right? Let's go back to my motherland. Italians will literally hire people. They will pay people to attend funerals of loved ones to cry. Because in Italian culture, whoever is the most sad wins. There is something about status there. There is something about a social acceptance uh, or honoring this person by having so many sad people around, they must have have lived such a life to have impacted all these people. Now you can hire these people. They are called whalers and it is an absolutely real thing. So I think that there's something again around this idea of status that we don't even know impacts us. If you're a mom in a mom group or even dads, right? I'm not a dad, so I don't know. But in the mom groups I'm around, there is a lot of this underlying kind of pressure or push and pull about who makes the best cookies. And I would never buy my kid's outfit. I totally handmade it. And we're starting getting away from that stuff of like how much you can do for your kids. But in the world of momming, there's almost this like hierarchy of like, can you believe she would bring store bought cookies to the, the school bake sale? And when I mean she, I mean my mother. Um, because I would do the same. So go Barb. Now, this carries over to like the, the University of Rochester did a study that found that those participating were asked about their goals. 
And they broke down goals into almost two categories without the participants actually realizing, but they asked them goals around fame and approval and self-acceptance and friendship. Like, what do you want out of life? Do you want this self-acceptance? Do you want friendship? Do you want these deep and powerful connections? Or are you looking for something bigger? And you know how studies do in their sneaky ways, and they kind of broke it down into a Likert scale. And then they found when they correlated it, that people who wanted the goals of fame and approval were way more likely to have higher levels of distress than the people who wanted self-acceptance and friendship. And again, like it makes sense because these are all external things that we want in our life. We're looking for other people to make us feel valued in the world that we live in rather than trying to find that place within ourselves. And it does. It, it changes our brain. There are absolutely brain changes that happen when we have a certain level of notoriety. We see this in all of the research out there about likes, about suicidal ideation, about people that are sad fishing, which for the record is people who put out their sob story online and get like a lot of like positive reinforcement about it. Like there's something to be said about how social media has really expanded and changed the landscape on this fundamental need and want to be seen and heard exploitation, exploitation. What about us who are just watching fame? What about us who are like, listen, I get it. I'm good. I'm not trying to do any of that stuff. And maybe I am. Maybe I am. Maybe I had fame uh, at one point, or maybe I was on the track for fame, but you know, like I decided to be a parent or I decided like I wanted to, uh, you know, who was the chick who was in all those movies? Save the last dance. Swim fan. Was she in Swim Fan? I want to say Julia Roberts, but I know for a fact that is not her name. Anyway, she's like a lawyer now. She like works like a normal job. Like I love looking at where stars are now. Like, can you like imagine just going into work and like Josh Hartnett like just works next to you and you're like, I loved you in Pearl Harbor, but can you just approve my time card? Uh, there's some there's something about that, right? And this I think comes from this idea of watching fame or being fame adjacent. Now I work with somebody who is very high up in primetime news. Um, and he and I were talking one day about the unwritten five C's of drawing people into you, of drawing audiences in, of like staying relevant, of trying to sell a story or, you know, trying to to make somebody feel something in order to sell it. Right. As gross as all of that sounds like right? there's a huge psychological piece to getting attention and keeping it. And this isn't something that they learn in school like this. I Googled it. This is not something that's like out there in the world. But he was like, there are five C's to having eyes on you in one way or another in storytelling in whatever. Right. And these five C's are the following. So this is like privileged inside information. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Collateral stories about collateral, collateral damage, you know, other people who got hurt in a process. Catastrophe makes sense. Conspiracy, which I'm all in on. Conflict and comedy. Those are the five C's that draw people in. Now, if you think about those five things, I would 1000% watch a show or a reality TV series or read a book or be a part of something with catastrophe, collateral, conspiracy, conflict, and comedy. Sign me all the way up. 
So it makes sense. And there's actually research that things that make us feel good at the end of the day. And when I say feel good, I mean like literal feel good stories, like these puff pieces, like, you know, the idea of like puppies and kids and like, oh my God, this little kid is raising so much money for, you know, homeless vets. Like it actually doesn't register with us as much as some of the stories that are truly horrific do. So a reality TV show about a bunch of women getting along and doing good is not going to make it because it doesn't register on this 5C level. It doesn't captivate and hold attention because we don't actually feel something from it. And as crazy and as fucked up as that sounds, it's true. And this is because the brain holds on to negative stuff way more than it does positive. If I asked you right now, tell me your happiest memory or tell me a time in your life that was the hardest, it would probably be so much easier for you to dive into the negative stuff. Why? Because that stuff, remembering the hurt, remembering all the negative stuff literally keeps you alive or keeps you, hopefully, from repeating the same mistake again. Whereas positive stuff does not impact survival. So your brain ranks it as like, The birth of your child was great. Let's put it over here. And we can't recall the feeling of positive things as readily as we can negative things. That intersection you got your accident, that you got into an accident on, I'm sure for years, if not forever, you remember it at some point in time, more acutely than others, as you know, obviously as time goes on, hopefully less acutely. But that feeling of your first kiss, like it's hard to recall that. It's hard to like have that again. So it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. But not all of this stuff is bad, right? When we talk about these five C's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to watch stuff about catastrophe or conspiracy or conflict or things like that. There's a lot of research about why people love true crime. Why I, Daryl Appleton, love true crime. And the summarization of the research that I found on this is basically... When we watch stuff about horrific things that happen to people, horrible things that we don't actually want to be a part of or want to have happen to us or even really want in our world, when we watch that, what happens in the brain is that actually is giving us signals of this person didn't survive, but look for clues. So if this happens to you, you can. That is why there's such a draw to such deep, dark, disgusting stuff. And there is a little bit of like a swivel rubber necking kind of thing that happens where we want to see the bad things that happen. Like it's part of human nature. Like there will always be traffic on the other side of the highway to see an accident when you can't even really see what happened because we want to know. We are creatures that want to know, which I think it goes into this watching of fame. The Kardashians love them, hate them, whatever. I don't actually really care. They are masters at at teaching you where to look. Masters at it. I respect the fact that when people can stay relevant for decades, there's something to that. Now, listen, doesn't mean I respect it or them or whatever. It doesn't actually matter. But there's something about having this ability to keep eyes on you that I think is unbelievable. And this is why, you know, with true crime, like it's never going to go out of style because there's always going to be people doing crazy things. This is why people copycat. Again, like when we're talking about the fame thing, like it makes sense. 
On the watching fame side, I want to also say that this idea of celebrity worship, and I don't know, there was a study on it, and I don't know how far into celebrity worship. I have to imagine it was like a healthy celebrity worship, which feels like a bizarre oxymoron to put out there. But they found that worshiping celebrities actually increased self-esteem. And they broke it down to say that, especially people who had a fear of a rejection and abandonment, being able to love somebody from afar who didn't know them was enough to boost self-esteem because they could role model being around that person or what they saw from that person. Rather, they could mimic some of the things that this person did. They weren't going to be rejected with, you know, from this person with how they felt because like they don't know them. But again, like when I think we're talking about like stalking and other stuff, like I don't think they meant that, by the way. I think also it's important to know that watching fame, there's a whole subset of reality TV. And I need to go into my text messages because I was having a conversation with one of my friends from high school who is in the world of screenwriting. She's in the world that she's in this kind of world, not necessarily the reality TV, but in the world of entertainment. And I was asking her opinion on this. I was like, what are your thoughts? And she had some really great ones. She said, as a writer and someone who has worked in scripted and unscripted, here's my theory on why there is such a proliferation of reality TV. Number one, it's cheaper to make. There are fewer unions to deal with. You don't have to pay a room full of writers and the storylines are cobbled together in edit. Scripted series are focused on conflict, where two characters' wants and deep emotional needs are in opposition with each other, which is different than reality TV conflict. Screaming matches, hair pulling, table flipping. This is my words, not hers. It also is easier, right? There are times when I come home from work and I just want to watch reality TV. I request it because I don't want to have to think. I don't want to have to watch. I was watching Echoes, that show Echoes on Netflix, and I loved it, Um, especially about twins. It makes me like feel like, oh my God, what am I in for? But I had to be in the mood to watch it because I had to pay attention. I don't have to pay attention when I'm watching you know, Shannon Bedore kind of freak out on somebody for whatever reason, like, because I know it's going to happen again in like 24 minutes. If I just stay tuned, they're going to like rehash it to death. There's something about like this cheap and easy idea of reality TV that scripted series don't often have. Now, back to my friend as a screenwriter, it's my job to make you feel something, something that resonates with your experience. Reality TV, while dealing with read real people, read non-actors, makes you escape into a world that's not your own and that you can live vicariously through them, which is really, really true, right? How many of us want to see behind the curtain and what it's like to be a real housewife of New York, what it's like to, you know, be a Kardashian, what it's like to be Bobby Brown, for those of you who are watching that, whatever, I don't judge. And this is her words. The deepest it goes is at least my relationship isn't like Khloe Kardashian and her baby daddy. So sidebar, there are actual research studies that show that reality TV does make us feel good in the sense that when we see bad things happening to rich, famous people with status, we like that. We like to we like to know that I don't have what they have but at least they have what I have in terms of pain and suffering, which is so petty of us. But we like when people fail. People cheer on other people to fail. I have clients who are in reality TV 
And when we talk about like the death threats that they get from people they don't even know, like they haven't even harmed, like they they have nothing to do with your life and you are wishing ill on them and their children. Like this is how far this really goes. It is wild. Back to my friend, my brilliant friend. Okay. Also, number two, unlike scripted series, reality TV does not require as much, quote, development input from executives and networks as it's being created, right? Like, on a scripted series, everybody is going to scrutinize everything. In reality TV, it's like, perfect, they punched each other? That's amazing. Number three, it is rewarded when it is similar to another already successful reality series. This is why 90 Day Fiance has 8 billion, brilliant, but billion shows that are offshoots and why Andy Cohen is the godfather of reality TV because of the housewives and Vanderpump rules. And now we're having a Southern comfort charm. I don't remember, but like, yes, yes, there's more of the same. It makes sense. And again, they're working smarter and not harder, I guess, because we are eating it up. Most entertainment executives have MBAs and not MFAs. So they want to see a, a consistent return on their investment, no matter how unoriginal. And reality is a less of a is less of a risk from their point of view. And she goes on to say, and in full transparency, I would absolutely give my left tit to be Aaron Sorkin level famous. There's something to be said about all of this, right? There's something about that. And I think that when we're engaging in reality TV, it is an escape and there is a fantasy involved with it. And there's also something around being able to talk about other people's lives to other people. For instance, my girlfriends and I, and even some of my clients, like we'll like be wrapping up sessions sometimes and we'll be talking about the housewives or we'll be talking about like, did you see what happened the other day? Because it's a common bonding point. For some people, it's sports. For some people, it's Bravo. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a way to bring people together. So it's almost like instead of talking about that girl in high school and, you know, gossiping in a terrible way, we're now talking about somebody we both don't know because we didn't go to high school together. So how could you know about her? But we're talking about somebody we both know. We don't feel bad about gossiping about because, quote, they put themselves out there. And now all of a sudden we get to talk shit about a person together. And isn't that what bonds people the most? That shit talking. It really, really is. The third installment we're going to get to after the break, and we're going to be talking about having fame. And this may be like, why do, Why should I care, Daryl? Why should I care? I think there's something really interesting to this because there's a really great study done with 12 to 15 like A-list people, and they looked at this phenomenological study of the lived experiences of being uber famous, and they found some of these themes that came out. So I thought that was really interesting in the, in the sense of having fame, and I really want to dissect that. Plus, I have a story from somebody who used to work at a late night show, which we will not disclose which one. Um, to protect the innocent. Uh, but I think it really kind of sheds some light as well on this idea of being so close to fame or trying to get into the psyche of somebody who has fame. So all of that coming up after the break. Welcome back to Feelings and Other F-Words. We are diving into the psychology of the last part of our F-Word of fame, and that is having fame. What happens when people actually get what they want? 
what does that look like? And I want to start this off with a story that was told to me um, by somebody who works uh, very closely with a lot of these people that we love. So here we go. And this is between us. Okay. This is confidential stuff. So don't go talking about it. (laughs) All right. When I was a page at a certain late night show in the 2000s, we had some weird training for when we encountered the host. Basically, it was speak until spoken to and stay out of the way. It was called the diamond rule after his assistant. The main point was, quote, don't make eye contact. One day I'm in the elevator after the show and lo and behold, the host comes in. Just us. After 10 seconds, he goes, I'm great. Thanks for asking. He just seems so annoyed at the whole thing. And then I saw him in a different light. How isolated he was. Sometimes it's often the trappings of fame are set up by the people around them and not the famous people themselves. He was still just a middle-aged man at the end of a long week. I think with fame, boundaries shift in weird and unexpected ways. And I think like there's something interesting about that, right? Like when we see behind the scenes or if you are old like me and the pop-up video stuff, like we love the idea of knowing what's going on in real life. We love this idea, which is again, why we like reality TV shows, because we think we're getting that. But there is this idea of like, we want to to see people being just people. And I think there's this draw to that. And there was this uh, um, Donna Rockwell, who looked at psychology and mental health of celebrities, really, found that fame really came at a price. And this theme of isolation absolutely comes up a lot because you become an object. I mean, Angelina Jolie's leg has a Twitter account for crisis. There is no further objectification of a person than having a body part have its own Twitter account. So there is something to be said about once you get what you want in the world of fame, what does that look like? Now, Donna Rockwell studied this. Again, the study I was talking about that studied these A-list celebrities and found that there were actually four phases of fame. When she looked at their lived experiences collectively, she could extract these common uh, threads that kind of went through each of these people's lives to come up with this. And the first thing was, there was a period of love and hate with the, the status. There was this idea that You had to grapple almost with your fame. There were these really high highs, but really low lows. There is this common thing that I hear too about this love-hate relationship with what they have. Some people are like, it gets in the way of my work. Some people are like, I literally am getting death threats for a paper I published or for taking something off the market that was no longer serving our public. Like there's something to be said with, how everybody sees you when you can't see all of them. And there is a little bit in the second phase of an addiction that comes from the fame. When you get accustomed to the attention, it is this cocktail of feel-good chemicals. You know, one of my clients says like, I've been addicted. This is like his favorite line. He's like, I've been addicted to everything. And I can tell you that fame is the best drug I've ever had. And like, I I can see it, right? We see how when people pull away from us, even in our romantic relationships, even when our boss doesn't text us back right away about a question we really want answered, like we freak out. Now imagine that on such a grand scale. 
or maybe not so grand. Again, maybe your post got 200 likes one time and now you get two. I think on some level, we're conditioned to be like, what happened? I had it and now it's gone. Is it me? What do I need to do to get it back? So there's something to be said about this idea of addictiveness that comes around with fame. The next level was this acceptance. And the acceptance came into the idea around, this is my life now. It came in around like, this is my life. This is what I'm doing. And I think that there's some getting used to and understanding they weren't who they used to be. You know, Chris Pratt can't just walk around like he used to. Although I did see something online that he was with somebody and they were asking the people of New York, like, do you know this guy? And they were like, nope. Is he is he good? Is he OK? Like, who is he? Um, so maybe there's some level of at least in New York City, you can be totally invisible because nobody in New York gives a shit. On the last level is a, a adaptation. Like you adapt to who you become, whether that's your persona, whether that's your life, like just knowing that you can get what you want and what you need by having fame. It's a really interesting, uh, you know, place. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about fame, when we're kind of putting all of this together, when we look at people being people, we, again, all want to be seen and heard. And fame is this seductress of just pulling us into a life that feels really good, but comes with a really heavy price when potentially we get what we want or when we don't. And our worth sometimes can be centered around that or even being pulled into the lives of other people. Sometimes we forget to go live our own. Or if we do, we're comparing it to something else we've seen, heard, maybe been a part of on the fringe side of it. But I think like there's something to be said about how it has shifted our expectation and fame. Maybe maybe it's always been there. Maybe I'm being uh, naive. But I think now more than ever, we are impacted by it. So once again, I have to apologize for Alan for thinking that this was dumb because we have talked about a lot of things who have pushed the way into our world and have demanded us to pay attention. How well or not we do that, how well or not we, we look at fame or how well we filter it through our, our own process I guess it depends on each one of us, but this was something that, again, I thank you, Alan, for pushing me a little bit further down the road to do, because I definitely would not have done it. If you have any interesting stories about your own fame or fame adjacency, I would totally love to hear it. One, because I'm voyeuristic and two, I want to unpack it. I think there's actually some interesting science behind this and it doesn't need to, again, be fame in the celebrity way, but maybe it's an industry thing. Maybe it's something, you know, again, in the medical field or the field of business. Um, until next time, friends, this is Feelings and Other F-Words. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Posted on dimlywit.com.